Well, this morning we come to a very moving part of the book of Acts. Take a Bible. We're in the fifth book in the New Testament, the book of Acts. We're doing a series on the book of Acts. Last week we noticed that there were two groups of Jews. Hebrew Jews and who else? Grecian Jews. So bear that in mind as we go through this passage today. Now last week I preached on seven verses. And I don't know how long that took, but some of you said it was too short. This week I'm preaching on more than a whole chapter, which will take about two hours. So it's really good that we have no fellowship meal today, right? Because we're going to be here for a while. And if we're going to try and get through so much material, and if you're going to stay awake, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, right? So let's pray for that. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, as we open Your sacred Holy Word this morning, we need help. We need help to cover such a large portion of Scripture. We need help to really understand what the issues uh, were in the early church and what lessons we can learn from them today. So bless us, Lord, we covet Your presence. In Jesus' name we thank You. Amen. Today we're going to be introduced to a man called Stephen, and it would be very, very easy to do a whole sermon just on the qualities of this man, Stephen, because he seemed to be an outstanding follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I really don't think that's the purpose of Luke. Luke is the writer, the historian, who put this material together. What I do want you to notice right at the beginning is that we are moving from a Jewish Jerusalem emphasis to a worldwide mission. The roots of Christianity are in Judaism. In fact, Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. But it couldn't stay there. It has to expand. And it was always God's intention for Judaism and the message of the Messiah to expand throughout the whole world. But they, as you know, were somewhat responsible for the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he raised up another church family whom we call the Christian church to spread that message. Stephen and a man called Philip helped to lay the foundation of the mission to the Gentiles. And when the message goes away from the Jews to the Gentiles, then we have the beginnings of a worldwide movement. So as we open our Bibles to chapter 6, and as I mentioned, we covered the, la the first seven verses last week, <clears throat> I want to bring a few things to your attention. This man, Stephen, in verse 3 of chapter 6, we are told that he was one of the seven who was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Would you like somebody to say that about you? That's what, that's what they said about Jesus. Even as a little child, 12-year-old boy, he displayed this wisdom. So he was a man full of the Spirit and wisdom. And Stephen was too. In verse 5, 
it said that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So now we can add faith to that. And in verse 8 of chapter 6, full of grace and power and great wonders and miraculous signs were done through this man. So Stephen has been mentioned as one of the seven, and now he's been singled out and focused on by Luke. In verse 7, it says, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So this is a progress report. Luke does this occasionally. And the large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then we come more directly to Stephen. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So just as we've seen Jesus, Peter and John, do amazing things under the power of God, to such an extent that we say, well, this was just for the apostles. And there's there's some truth to that. They did directly carry on the work of Jesus. There were many healings. Do you remember we talked even about the shadow of Peter falling on people? Amazing healings. It It must have been tremendous to go through a whole village, a whole town, and every sick person is healed. This is going to get the attention of people. When you get the attention of people, then you can tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ who makes all of this possible. But now, we're not talking about an apostle. We're talking about a man of service. Last week's sermon, one of the seven. Not sure if we should even call Stephen a deacon, but we can do. There's no problem with that. But he's way more than what we think of as a deacon. Who's a deacon? A deacon is a man who comes and opens the church early before anyone else gets there. Deacon is a man who adjusts the blinds Sabbath morning, lets some light in. But notice more about a deacon here. Stephen is a man full of God's grace and power. Yes, we would expect that. Did great wonders, miraculous signs among the people. And we're also going to find out this man was a preacher. And his preaching is going to cause a lot of opposition. In verse 9, opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, who are they? Well, it seems as though they were Grecian Jews. And Stephen, as a Jew, had the ability, spoke the language, and he had the ability to reach this group of people. There's nothing wrong with we're targeting certain groups of people. When I was in Oakland, we rented our building to a church that targeted Asian Americans, and they were very successful in doing that. So here you have a man that has an ability to communicate with this certain mindset. And if you remember last week's sermon, I talked about some of the differences between a Hebraic, a Hebraic Jew and a Grecian Jew. So here's the man that can communicate to them and have a lot of success in doing that. But of course, when there is success with God's work, then somebody gets on the warpath. So opposition arose from the synagogue of the freedmen. These were slaves that had been freed who were there in Jerusalem. And they began to argue with Stephen. 
but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. This may be a good time to look at um, two texts in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12. So keep your finger in Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Same writer, Luke, wrote the Gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts. Chapter 12. And what verse did I say? Verse 12. Verse 11 and 12. When you're brought, Jesus says before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. In a few minutes, we're going to go into Stephen's response, and this is why I bring in these texts. Verse 20, chapter 21 of Luke, and verse 15. Again, it's the words of Jesus. Well, I'm going to go back to verse 12. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So here we see this man full of the Holy Spirit is being hauled on the carpet. It says here that they couldn't stand up to his reasoning powers, to his wisdom, and so they persecute. And I think it's a very important lesson that we need to emphasize here that if Christianity is not reasonable, if it's looked on as forcing something down people's throats, we have a huge problem. Uh, when I was in Oakland, I, I helped to bring a young man into the church, and, and one of the reasons he, didn't, he never became a full-fledged Catholic was because he says they would never answer my questions. And hopefully through me and others, we were able to try and, and answer his questions. At least we need to have that spirit of willingness to do that. But notice that when Stephen, full of truth, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the presence of God, when he tries to explain things to, to them, they didn't know what to say. It says here they began to argue they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And what we're seeing here on the trial of Stephen and the martyrdom later of Stephen is something very similar to what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. This man has the Spirit of Jesus in him, and they're going to treat him in a very similar way as they treated Jesus. Did Jesus get a fair trial? Were the, were the charges against him above board? Were they reasonable? No, they were not. And no, nor are they against Stephen. There's a jealousy here. 
on behalf of religious people against other spiritual people. So they stirred up the people, the elders and the teachers of the law. Verse 12, they seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. What is the holy place? Temple and against the law, the Word of God. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, if you remember the life of Jesus, similar charges were leveled against him. But Jesus never spoke against the law of Moses. Jesus was the one who gave the law of Moses. Jesus was the one who who instituted the synagogues and the temple services and the tabernacle of the temple testimony, the sanctuary that they carried around in, in the wilderness. But they were all to be illustrations pointing towards something. And that something is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would fulfill the temple. Jesus would fulfill the law or the Word of God. He says all Scripture testifies of who? of Jesus, of Him. So if you're reading the Bible and you're struggling to really understand it, somehow you're missing what it's saying about Jesus because He's the red thread that runs throughout Scripture. So they probably paid these people to produce these trumped-up charges against Stephen. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw his face, verse 15, was like the face of an angel. When I looked at some of these children this morning, I thought, there, I'm seeing some faces of angels. Well, if I talk with their mom and dad, they may say something different, but they look like little cherubs to me. So the face of an angel. Do you remember Moses when he was in the presence of God? His face shone. Going to see the same thing said about Stephen. So this is a testimony, if you like, on God's part, that that this man has the seal of approval. Look at his face. If you can't understand his words, Jesus said on one occasion, if you don't believe my words, believe the miracles. All the good that he's done to other people. And you could say the same thing, of course, with Stephen. Then the high priest asked him in chapter 7, are these charges true? They are serious charges. In a Jewish context, it couldn't be more serious than to speak against the temple, the holy place, and against the law. So now we look at Stephen's defense, and it is a very long section. I don't believe I'll even try and read all these words to you because it would just not. It would just take too long. But he uses Abraham as his first line of defense. Now when we come to the promises that are made in Scripture, we pretty much start in Genesis chapter 12. There are some other promises given to, to, uh, to Noah, even to Adam and Eve, but, but the New Testament pretty much starts with Abraham. 
So these promises were made to Abraham. Many of you know, know the, the background in the book of Genesis to, to what Stephen is going to say here. These promises that I will give you a family. And I, when the man was childless at, at, a, at an elderly age, and I will give you the land. Remember? So there were at least, at least two main promises there. So Abraham is mentioned. Um, to this he replied in verse 2, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country, your people, God said. Go to the land that I will show you. So Abraham is mentioned and the importance of what God was doing to reach the whole world with the good news of Jesus through Abraham. After Abraham, in verse uh, 8 and 9, he mentions the 12 patriarchs and Joseph. So many of us like the story of Joseph. But what was God trying to do? Well, God is, is, is uh, expanding his kingdom through the Israelites. In fact, we are told in the Old Testament that his plan is that is that if these people would be faithful to him, the nation that he would eventually form, that the whole world would respond and learn the truth about God, the, the real truth about God, as they came to Jerusalem. So you'll find promises in Zechariah and other places in the Old Testament that say that, and you'll scratch your head and you'll think, well, how, did all, how do all these things fit together? Just know that it was God's plan part of God's plan to work through the nation of Israel to take the good news, not so that they could say, oh, we have the truth and we can sit on it. But we have, God has been gracious uh, earlier. Uh, what blessings do we have at Thanksgiving time? Uh, we don't deserve these blessings. You know, this is a good, good, humble attitude to have. And yet we receive the blessings and we want to pass the blessings on, right? We can't just selfishly keep them to ourselves. And as long as the Jewish people remembered that, they would be prospered by God. Because there were lots of people on planet Earth who hit, needed to hear the good news. Is that still true, by the way? Absolutely. I wish as a teenager when I was struggling to try and figure out what life was about, that somebody would have said, young man, older people always called you young man, with a certain tone of voice. Young man, I need to tell you some, some truths here. And I may have laughed at it, and I may have mocked it, but God could have used it to sow some seed in my life so that I could have come to Jesus a little bit earlier than 20 years of age. So we move from Abraham to Joseph and the patriarchs. And then he says in verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. So as this story unfolds in the Old Testament, we're going to get an Old Testament Bible study. It's the only Bible that Stephen had and that the early church had. And it's going to go from Abraham to Joseph and the patriarchs. It's going to move on to Moses. So he says in verse 17, as the promise is being fulfilled in Egypt, our people increase. There will be a great family from you, Abraham. And that leads him up to verse 20, and Moses. And it seems that this is the longest section. So we have Abraham, we have Joseph and the patriarchs, 
we have Moses, but he dwells on Moses for quite a while because he had been accused of speaking, blaspheming against Moses and against God. So here's his defense. Verse 20, at that time Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's household. And those of you who know that the story, know that he was taken into the Egyptian royal household eventually, and he was trained there. And he knew something about delivering his people. And when he tried to do that in his own strength, it came collapsing down. Just like it did for Abraham. No, God has to fulfill his purposes in his own time, in his own way. Notice verse 37. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. That's taken from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. So in the Old Testament, which is a book of the prophets, there would be a special prophet. Just a different way of talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Moses would say, listen to him. And if you do not listen to him, you will be cut off from God's people. All prophesying, the Old Testament points forward to the fulfillment, and the New Testament helps us to interpret the one who came, the one who fulfilled all of these promises. Verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. They rejected him in their hearts. They turned back to Egypt. This is with Moses. He goes on to say in verse 42, um, this is what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? And yet you lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So if they're not going to worship the true God, they are going to worship something. Everybody worships something. Even those that say, I don't want to know about God, I'm not worshiping. Yes, you are worshiping whether you know it or not. So if the, if the Jewish people would not worship the true God, he would send them into exile, teach them some hard lessons. Sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Most of us are pretty stubborn people. And many of us have to hit rock bottom before we will learn. And there's nothing more rock bottom than your city and your temple being destroyed, your young men being killed in battle, and then the whole nation dispersed to a foreign land. Whether it be Assyria or Babylon, it's the same a lesson of, of tough love on discipline on God's part. Um, notice verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony. So this, this refers to uh, this tabernacle before they set up the temple. It's going to lead to the temple with them in the desert. Stephen says nothing bad and everything good about these things. They were God-given gifts to the nation. But if, if God doesn't have obedience on the part of his people, then he has to uh, work some other way. 
And then in verse um, 45, it remained in the land, this tabernacle of the testimony, until the time of David. So here's another one, David. So we've gone from Abraham to Joseph and the patriarchs. Now we're talking about David and Solomon. Um, asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So this is all about where God is. Even if the temple is destroyed and the nation is dispersed, where is God? And if you have the mentality that God can only be in this room, then you misunderstand God. If you have the mentality that God can only be in the temple, which was a huge issue in the time of Stephen, then you misunderstand. If, if God can only be amongst the Jews, then again you misunderstand the, the heart and the mind of God. God is working through all the world. We can see documentaries on TV, the most primitive people. I can guarantee you God is working there. They don't have a Bible. They've never heard about the true God. But God, via His Spirit, can be all over the world, working in the lives and the hearts of people. And this lesson of God not being restricted was a really hard one for the Jews. Think of all the encounters that Jesus had with the Jewish religious leaders. And they said, well, we know who our Father is, insinuating that Jesus didn't know who His Father was. Oh, yeah, you do? Yeah, our father's Abraham, our father's Moses. Well, if it is, if Abraham or Moses is really your father, why are you planning to kill me? You see how, how twisted religious people can, can become? So we move to David. We move to Solomon. Verse 47, it was Solomon who built the house. David wasn't allowed to do that. However, here's the point. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? This is the God of the universe. Sometimes we get these amazing uh, photos on our computers. See it in magazines. Galaxies colliding. Amazing things happening in space. Well, above all of that is the Creator God who created these things. So do you think if heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool, that a house will contain the living God? Or where will my resting place be, Stephen says? Has not my hand made all these things? This is taken from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 66. And then, now this is interesting. If you read Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White, which I strongly encourage you to, to look at that, as long as this section is, it's quite brief the way she treats it. But she mentions that at, at this point in the sermon, let's just say we're mid-sermon for Stephen in what we're reading that the high priest tore his robe. And when Stephen looked into the faces of these people and saw the high priest tear his robe, he knew that it was his final testimony. He knew that in a, in a few moments he would be laying his life down to die for his Lord. 
And so it's like he cuts right off in midstream and says this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That'll make a pastor popular with his people, right? You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. There's another name for Jesus. He has many names in Scripture. And now you have betrayed and murdered Him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. I mean, we can, we can talk all we want. That we are the true church, we are this and we are that. But if we're not obedient people, it doesn't mean very much. And unfortunately, many, many of these followers of the true God, these Jewish people, were not obedient, especially the religious leadership. We know from other places when we've, we've studied together that the, the hearts of the, the common people were with Jesus and were with the apostles. And I, I have no doubt at all that they were with Stephen. This man has outstanding, outstanding qualities. But they're not obedient to the Holy Spirit. That's coming pretty close to the unpardonable sin, don't you think? When they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. So in our hour of crisis... Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Some of you have been going through crisis with the loss of loved ones. We have church members that are going to go through that in the next few days, the next few weeks. And the promise of Jesus is as sure as anything else in their life, more sure than anything else in their life. I am with you to the end of the age. Would Jesus abandon Stephen at this hour of crisis? Well, what does the text say? Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, just like Moses did on Mount Sinai, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. They were yelling at the top of their voices, away with this heretic, this blasphemer. And they rushed him. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. That was the penalty for blasphemy against God and Moses. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why does Luke mention Saul? It's his clever way of introducing the main character in the second section of the book of Acts. And it makes me think that Saul, who later became Paul, was one of the leaders of this persecution against Stephen. That's how some commentators interpret this verse. The witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, 
Stephen prayed. Remind you of the Lord Jesus Christ, this. Lord Jesus, he said, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, what happened? He fell asleep. Which is a metaphor for death. So those who die believing in Jesus, we like to say they fall asleep in Jesus. And the next thing they will know is they'll look into the face of the lovely Lord Jesus Christ and they will hear the resurrection cry, the gift of immortality being given to them and spending the rest of their lives with the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 8, verse 1, here's Saul again. And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Again, we learn from Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White that Paul, or Saul rather, was promoted to become a member of the Sanhedrin. He had done well. Not in your opinion and not in mine. But the people he, he uh, lived with and worshipped with and worked for did him well by promoting him to the Sanhedrin. So what's the value of this? And why this long section on this one man, Stephen, in the book of Acts? How shall we, how shall we summarize um, this section? Well, Stephen is known as the first Christian martyr. And as I've said to you before, the word martyr means witness. Witness means martyr. There's no separation there. So if a man and a woman believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is willing to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ, then that same person should be willing to lay down their lives. And as we, con as we continue this next week, we will see that severe persecution came to the church through Saul. And the church would be heavily persecuted, and yet somehow, someway, this death of Stephen, this persecution of the church, is all part of the plan of God to get the message out of Jerusalem. Jesus says you will preach in Jerusalem, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts, eventually, of the world. Now we are starting to see the beginnings of that and the spreading of the gospel through persecution. But also the death of Stephen tells us something else. The death of Stephen is like the catalyst for giving us a worldwide Christian mission. Also the teachings of Stephen tell us again that Jesus fulfilled law and temple teaching. Now this was a really hard lesson even for very sincere Jewish Christians to understand. We're not talking of a few months or even a few years. We are talking decades before they could really grasp that Jesus had fulfilled all of the promises in the Word and as far as the temple sacrificial service was concerned. 
And then I think a very important point is our God is a mobile God. He is not restricted. In fact, in Ezekiel, he's going on wheels. There's a lot I could say about that, but some Adventists have mocked that idea of the throne of God on wheels. But it seems to fit in here, at least in my mind, that God is not restricted. He reveals himself to, to Abraham. Through Abraham, the promises would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed, the seed, singular, not plural, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling that. And ultimately, always God's plan to spread this good news around so that every person on planet Earth, everyone who is listening to me this morning, has the opportunity to have eternal life. So Stephen made a great contribution. And at his death, seed was sown. Even the ones who, who grinded their teeth, did they have dentists in those days? Those who grinded their teeth and were furious were impressed at the death of this man. Wouldn't you be impressed? if the glory of God is resting upon him, if his face is shining with the presence of God, isn't that saying God's approval is upon this man? Even if you can't understand his Bible study that he's giving you, I'm with this man and you should be able to visibly see this. And Saul never ever forgot the death and the way, the manner that this man died and that God would honor the enemy, seemingly, of Judaism. When Jesus would later say to him on the Damascus Road, we won't be studying that for a while, but when Jesus would do that, he says, why do you prick, why do you kick against the pricks? And this death of Stephen haunted Saul, and I believe was instrumental God used it as, as, as an instrument to bring Saul to repentance and to give his life for the true God. The very fact that half of the book will be talking about the contribution of Saul who became Paul shows how important the life and teachings and especially the death of Stephen were. I don't know about you, but I find it kind of sobering to see how this good, good man would lay his life down for his Lord. And I hope that all of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning would do the same thing if God called for us to lay down our lives too. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this wonderful Lord Jesus Christ who, who left the royal courts of heaven, and came to this dark world that hated him and rejected him so that each one of us could have life. Jesus is the only human being who has ever kept the law perfectly. And he's our representative if we want him to be. So I pray, Lord, that those of us here this morning who are struggling to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that we will study that you'll put the desire in our hearts to learn about Jesus and to commit ourselves totally, unreservedly to him. 
We thank you, Lord, for that when we do that, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. You declare us righteous in your sight, and we become part of your, the great family of God. Help us to understand, Lord, as we see the gospel spreading, eventually becoming a worldwide family, that we are part of it as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and you have purposes for the human race, and they will be fulfilled in your time, at your pleasure. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.